0: Well, we're going to read the Bible together now, and we're turning to the book of Exodus. So, boys and girls, this morning we were thinking about the first commandment, and we're going to read all of the commandments now together. It's page 61 in the Pew Bibles, and it's Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20, and we're going to read from verse 1 down to verse 21. There are 10 commandments. We thought about the first one earlier in our morning service through the children's address And we're going to think about that tonight through our sermon here in church. So the Ten Commandments, Exodus chapter 20. We're going to begin at verse 1 and read down to verse 21. And this is God's word to us. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Moses said to the people do not fear for the Lord has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Amen and we thank God for his word to us this evening. Well at this point in our service let's take our Bibles and turn back to the book of Exodus to Exodus chapter 20. Uh, we're thinking about the Ten Commandments tonight. Uh, you'll find them on page 61 of the Pew Bibles, at uh, page 61. And as you're turning to Exodus 20, uh, let's pray together. And as we pray, we pray the words of Psalm 19 The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure making wise the simple. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Let the words of my mouth And the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight o lord my rock and my redeemer amen well this evening we're starting a series within a series over the past year or so we have been coming and going from the book of exodus tonight we're going to pick that series up again and look at the 10 commandments together. Over the next couple of months, we're gonna think about each commandment individually. Uh, Before Christmas, we're gonna look at the first four commandments. And after Christmas, uh, we'll look at the six others. And that's actually quite a natural way to split the commandments. Uh, When speaking about the 10 commandments, theologians talk about the two tables of the law. So there are the first four commandments and they concern reverence toward God serve him only don't make idols or images don't misuse his name and honor his day and then the following six commandments are about respecting other human beings honor parents don't murder don't betray your spouse don't steal don't perjure yourself and don't covet what is your neighbors the structure of the ten commandments is simple to see and understand honor god and care for your neighbor and actually that structure has has shaped Western culture and Western history in an incredible way. Unfortunately though, we live in a day when the Ten Commandments aren't known and aren't followed and aren't seen as a helpful moral framework anymore. As far back as 2007, which we might think of as Christendom compared to our current day, in 2007, the Ten Commandments were unfamiliar to large swathes of our culture. A 2007 survey in America found that people knew the ingredients, the seven ingredients of a McDonald's Big Mac and members of the Brady Bunch, the television programme, better than they knew the Ten Commandments. In 2014, so just a few years later, CNN ran an article on their website with the title Behold Atheists New Ten Commandments. And the article explained how two men had tried to come up with ten non-commandments They asked for input from all around the world and offered $10,000 to the winning modern-day Moses. They received nearly 3,000 submissions. They appointed a panel of 13 judges who were told to select 10 winners. And this is what they come up with, the 10 non-commandments of our age. They're on the screen. You can follow along with me. Here are the 10 non-commandments that were, were, were picked as the winning commandments of our age. One, be open-minded and be willing to alter your beliefs with new evidence. Two, strive to understand what is most likely to be true, not to believe what you wish to be true. Three, the scientific method is the most reliable way of understanding the natural world. Four, every person has the right to control their, uh, has the right to control their body. Five, God is not necessary to be a good person or to live a full and meaningful life. Six, be mindful of the consequences of all your actions and recognize that you must take responsibility for them. Seven, treat others as you would want them to treat you and can reasonably expect them to, be, them to want to be treated. Think about their perspective. Eight, we have the responsibility to consider others, including future generations. Nine, there is no one right way to live. And 10, leave the world a better place. Than you found it. Now, what do you think of those? I think two things. I think there's a lot of waffle in there, and they're definitely not as memorable as the actual Ten Commandments given to us in the Bible. I mean, try imagine learning those off in Sunday school. It'd be pretty difficult to learn those ten non-commandments off. But but here's the thing: those ten non-commandments perfectly capture the default moral code of our day yet they're full of stunning contradictions. The most notable contradiction being that they say you don't need God to be a good person or to know how to live, that's number five. But number seven, non-commandment number seven, is a summary of the golden rule which came from Jesus in Matthew 7, verse 12. Broadly speaking, society has, has removed what it believes to be the shackles of the Ten Commandments, but so is the church. Unfortunately, we live in a day when the Ten Commandments aren't known and aren't followed by professing Christians. You've maybe heard or used the phrase, Christianity isn't about rules, it's about relationship. Uh, that has been a popular slogan in recent times. It's been the tagline of evangelistic messages and it's an attempt to solve a PR problem. The, the, the PR problem is that, is that God in the Old Testament is so often understood to be the grumpy lawgiver among other things. Saying Christianity isn't about rules, it's about relationships, trades the grumpy, law-giving God for the compassionate New Testament God of grace. Now you know, or at least I hope you know, that God is the same in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. His character doesn't change. The God of the Old Testament is the same God revealed to us in the New Testament. But is Christianity about rules or is it about relationship? The Christian faith is... Absolutely about relationship, but while our faith is personal, it's also communal. We're saved into a special relationship with other believers. Christianity is about a relationship with God and others, and because that is true, Christianity is also about rules. Rules show us how to live in those relationships, and rather than threaten or constrain relationships, rules enable relationships. Imagine that you're a substitute teacher and you're looking for work in primary schools in your area. What, what kind of school would you rather go to? One that has established and respected rules posted on its website or one that doesn't, one without? R- rules make sure that the one in charge is honoured and they look after the interests of others as well. And the thing is too, Jesus did not pit up rules against relationships He said, if you love me, you will do what? How would you fill in that blank? Jesus said, if you love me, you will, how does it finish? You will keep my commandments. John 14 verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. We need to be very careful about legalism, about attempting to earn favor with God through obedience to the law. But we need to be careful that we don't forget the beauty of the law either. It's as our call to worship has reminded us, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. We should love the law because we love Jesus and because Jesus loved the law. He was perfectly obedient to it. And if we know and follow him, lawfulness will mark our lives. To obey the law is to look like Jesus Christ. You're here tonight. You come to the evening service because I assume you want to grow in your faith, you want to go deeper with God, you want to know more of Him, you want to become more like Him. This series is going to help you do that because as you obey the law, you will become more like Jesus. The law or your obedience to the law is not the basis of your standing before God, but the law will help you to know how to live as a follower of Jesus in this world. Let me give you a quote at this point that is really helpful. If you're taking notes, you might want to write this down. It's from a Puritan minister called Samuel Bolton. It's going to come up on the screen. Samuel Bolton said this about the law. He said the law sends us to the gospel that we may be justified, and the gospel sends us to the law again to inquire what is our duty as those who are justified. Let's read it again. The law sends us to the gospel that we may be justified. And the gospel sends us to the law again to inquire what is our duty as those who are justified. Let's just unpack that quote for a moment. Let's leave it on the screen. The law sends us to the gospel. One of the functions of the law is that it convicts us of sin. Don't know about you, but I always find it very convicting when the 10 commandments are read out loud in worship in church. In the Bible, there are different words for sin and they all describe sin in different ways. So the word sin conveys the fact that we all fall short of the mark. There's the word iniquity, and that has the sense of twistedness. We're twisted and warped because of sin. And there's also transgression. And the basic idea with that word is that we've crossed the line. God has given us the law, and we cross the line. That's why it's convicting to hear the Ten Commandments read out loud. The Bible condemns lawlessness. 1 John 3, verse 4, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. The, The very definition of sin is rejection of law. We are all lawbreakers. We have broken the law of God. We haven't kept it perfectly. So when we hear the law, we're driven with lights blazing and sirens flashing to the gospel. But when we've come to Christ, when we've been justified by him, the law tells us how to live. The law sends us to the gospel so that we may be justified. And the gospel sends us to the law again to inquire what is our duty as those who are justified. That's very clear from the first words of the Ten Commandments. The very first words of, of Exodus 20, before any imperative is issued, are about the fundal, fundamental motivation for all that follows. And they remind us of God's grace. His love set upon the Israelites before they had a chance to obey any of his commands. Just look at how the Ten Commandments begin in Exodus 20. It says, And God spoke all these words, saying, First of all, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Then command one, you shall have no other gods before me. And command two, you shall not make for yourself a carved image. And so on. The the crucial thing to see is that the commandments begin with an unmistakable reference to God's prior saving action. He declares himself already your God. He has already brought you out of slavery. Here's the logic in simple terms. You are loved, now obey. You are loved, now obey. It's not obey and you will be loved. So many people think that it's the second. Obey and you'll be loved. But it's the first. You are loved, now obey. You you are loved, you've been saved, you've been brought out of slavery. Uh, Going back into chapter 19, you're God's treasured possession, you're a, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now you should obey. As we come to the Ten Commandments, one of the most important keys for us is that the gospel comes first. And our obedience to the law comes in light of what God has done for us. Now, we've said a lot already, and it's been mainly background about the Ten Commandments and how we understand them. If you remember anything, nothing else from what I've said, remember this. The Ten Commandments are really helpful for us as we seek to follow Jesus. There's more to say about the background and our understanding of the commandments. And I'm going to drip feed that to you throughout the series But for the rest of our time together, we're going to look at the first commandment. You'll see it in Exodus 20, verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. How do we keep the first commandment? Let me give you three simple ways that we can keep this commandment. This won't take too long to work through these points. First of all, to obey the first commandment, we should worship God exclusively. The first commandment is based on what the Lord did for the Israelites in Egypt in Egypt. He saved them, he rescued them, he delivered them. He has a claim over them. In verse two, when God says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, he's reminding them of the staff, the plagues and the Red Sea. He's saying to them, why would you trust any other so-called God? Why would you trust yourself? You didn't escape Egypt by yourselves. You didn't escape because of your cleverness or because of Pharaoh's kindness. I defeated mighty Egypt you can trust me. We should be careful that we don't misunderstand the phrase, no other gods before me. It's not suggesting that there are other gods, there aren't. The the Mosaic Covenant, the whole Bible in fact, clearly presumes monotheism, the doctrine or belief that there's only one God. No other gods should be worshipped because in reality, there are no other gods but Yahweh. (coughs) The, the Apostle Paul makes this point clear... <coughs> excuse me. The, the Apostle Paul makes this point clear... Centuries later in 1 Corinthians 8... He writes the following... Let me take a drink and then I'll read it to you. So Paul in 1 Corinthians 8 says... For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth... As indeed there are many gods and many lords... Yet for us there is one God... The Father from, from whom all things and for whom we exist and the one lord Jesus Christ through whom we are through whom all things through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So what Paul is saying is that the gods of this world are only so-called gods. They don't exist in any real sense. There's only one supreme being in the universe and he demands to be worshiped alone. Now the people of Israel really struggled with this at times and actually we really struggle with it too. The fancy word for the trap Israel fell into again and again is syncretism. God's people were constantly tempted to to make their faith a both-and religion, whereas God said it's either-or. So think of Joshua renewing the covenant at Shechem, put away the gods that your father served beyond the river and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. I think of Elijah on top of Mount Carmel. How long will you go limping between two different opinions If the Lord is God, follow him, but if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. So think of Jesus reminding his followers in the Sermon on the Mount that no one can serve two masters, for either either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. The fault with God's people then and now has always been that little word, and. The Lord is fine, but we want the Lord and Baal, the Lord and Asherah, the, the Lord and money, the, the Lord and power and influence or whatever it might be. We're quite happy to have God in our lives as long as He only fills part of our lives. But God has no interest in being one important person among many. God cannot be worshipped rightly if He's worshipped alongside any other. good, good illustration to help us understand the first commandment is marriage. You can't have a both-and relationship with your spouse. Imagine a husband comes home and says, Honey, so glad to see you. Want to introduce you to someone special. Don't get me wrong, you're very special, but I've met someone else, and you'll be great friends. You'll get along just fine, but you both mean so much to me. Now, what would happen? Play the tape on the situation. The wife would say, It is me or her. Make up your mind. Some relationships are meant to be either or, not both and. Marriage is a relationship that demands forsaking all others. And so it is with God. Love is at the very heart of the first commandment. If we truly love God, we will love no one else and nothing else like we love God. We choose God because he first chose us. And now forsaking all others, we commit ourselves unreservedly to him. There can be no and in our relationship with God, we love and worship him above all because he alone is God. That's the first thing then, worship God exclusively. Here's the second, shun all idolatry. Idolatry is something that we talk about quite a lot in church. An old Christian catechism defines idolatry as having or inventing something in which one trusts in place of or alongside of the only true God who has revealed himself in his word. My voice is like gravel tonight. Uh, Most of us aren't tempted to bow down before trees and statues, but we'd be foolish to think that we don't have the same inclination for idolatry that they had in ancient Israel. While we may know on an intellectual level that we can make food or family or football into an idol, we don't stop to think about the attraction of idolatry. The same forces Uh, at work in the ancient world that made idolatry attractive, are still with us today, pulling us and and prodding us to trust in something or someone else alongside the only true God. Uh, Idolatry in the ancient world was really easy. You had to bring offerings and so on, but there was no real ethical standard for you to follow. Your average Canaanite didn't need an elaborate moral code. They just had to turn up and present a, a drink or a dead animal. And that's the trap Israel fell into time and time again. It doesn't really matter what I do. I just have to show up and go through the motions, go through the religious rituals. Idolatry was also convenient. Ancient worship worked on a franchise model. There were lots of places you could go to to take care of your religious obligations. And this was attractive to Israel. Why not build a few high places? Why, Why not make worship a little bit more convenient? But God called for worship in one place, at the tabernacle and later in the temple and idolatry was normal everyone else though their gods had different names and did different things did religion the same way the israelites were unique in the ancient world god's people didn't just have a few special rules their understanding of god and of how to worship him was fundamentally different but it's very hard to be a religious minority. It's not hard to see why idolatry was so attractive and and why Israel was, was constantly tempted to adopt the same practices. The religion of the world was easy, convenient, and normal. And we're tempted by the same things, aren't we? Easy religion that doesn't require much from us. Convenient religion that means that we can follow God ourselves but not be accountable to a wider church family. That normal religion, that means we're just like everyone else, that we fit in with everyone else. There's nothing different about us, really. The first commandment comes to us, though, and says, Worship God exclusively and also shun all idolatry. But it tells us something else. It says, Turn to Christ uniquely. As we're going to see through this series, this first commandment, like the others, is transformed by the coming of Christ. By transformed, we're not saying these commandments don't apply to you anymore, but the way they apply and the way we obey them does change. A better word might be the word transposed. If you're in any way musical, you'll know what that word means. It means if you transpose a piece of music, the melody stays the same, but it's played in a different octave or in a different key. And that's sort of how it is with the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments change from the Old Testament to the New Testament. It's the same score, but it's a different key. These commandments are still commandments for the church, but they've been transposed by the coming of Christ. We can think of this first commandment in relationship to Christ as a tale of two mountains. So God came down on Mount Sinai saying, worship me alone. Then about a thousand years later, he came down on the Mount of Transfiguration and said of Jesus, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. It's amazing that the God who said worship me and listen to my rules now tells us to listen to his son. On this side of the cross, the first commandment means giving to Christ the worship he deserves. He is the one mediator between God and man. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus himself said, if you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him. And have seen him. In other words, Jesus has the audacity to say, If you know me, you know God. If you follow me, if you love me and worship me, you worship God. When you see me, you have seen God in the flesh. The implication from all of that is that if if you don't know God in Christ, then you don't really know God. The first commandment can't be properly obeyed unless we worship the one alone who is the true God. It isn't enough to use the word God or to belong to a monotheistic religion. We're not worshipping the one true God unless we're worshipping the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's only one God and we should worship him exclusively, shun all idolatry and turn to Christ uniquely. There's only one God. No other gods except me, as we said with the boys and girls this morning. Now, all of that is very well in theory, but how do you make this live? You're here tonight because you want to grow in your faith. How are you going to live out the first commandment this week? In his commentary on the first commandment, Calvin says that we owe God four things, adoration, trust, invocation, and thanksgiving. And each of these can be applied to Christ as we seek to obey the first commandment. So in adoration, we worship Christ. In trust, we treasure Christ. In invocation, we look to Christ. And in thanksgiving, we find grace in Christ. That's how we obey the first commandment as, as New Testament Christians. And we can use those four points, the four points that are on the screen, to ask four diagnostic questions. You know the way if your car breaks down and you take it to the mechanic and you say, not really sure what's wrong with it, could you check it over and have a look at it? What's the first thing the mechanic does? They'll run diagnostic tests. They'll They'll try and isolate the problem. We need to run diagnostic tests on our hearts. Here are some questions that help us do that in relation to the first commandment. Who do you praise? We're thinking about adoration. So who do you praise? You might compliment your children, your spouse and friends. But who receives your highest praise? Who do you count on? That's your trust. That's trust. God works through means such as doctors, insurance companies and prescription medicine. But you're, when you're really in need, who do you know will always come through? Who do you count on? Who do you call for? That's invocation. What do you look for for answers? What do you turn for for purpose and joy? Is it food? Is it work? Is it TV? Is it your phone? Is it your social media profiles? Or is it? The God of the universe, the God who is so big, so strong, so mighty, there's nothing he cannot do. And who do you thank? Where do your good days come from? Who made the trees and the stars and everything that you see around? Questions like those help to reveal the gods in our lives. The one we praise, the one we count on, the one we call for, and the one we thank is the one we worship. Only in Christ can we find satisfying and saving answers to all those questions. Only in him can we truly obey the first commandment. He alone is worthy, willing and mighty to save. So as we go into another week, let's remember his command to us. You shall have no other gods before me. Let's pray together. Lord, our prayer is simple. Having looked at the first commandment, we pray that we would put you first in all that we say and do this week. Help us to live out this commandment. Help us to follow you wholeheartedly and to give you our all. We thank you for Jesus, the one who has kept the law perfectly so that we can know you. We pray that you'd help us this week to keep the first commandment and that you'd help us through the rest of this series as we think about the other nine. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.